I mean, why? why? From the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, you're listening to Veritalk. Veritalk. Your window into the minds of PhDs at Harvard University. I was curious. I've always wondered. Why is... Where did how it, did we get... Why? 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 I'm Anna Fisher-Pinkert. In this miniseries, we're talking about displacement. Why and how do people get set apart from their communities? As always, we're going to answer that question through the research of PhD students in different fields at Harvard. More than 500,000 Rohingya 625,000 Rohingya refugees. Last time, we talked with Krisa Pugh about Rohingya refugees in Burma. So people don't call the Rohingya Rohingya in Burma because to name them means to acknowledge their existence. The crisis in Burma is still ongoing, and we don't actually know how long the Rohingya will be displaced or if return is really possible. And that led me to wonder how living for decades in exile will impact Rohingya culture and community and how it will impact the next generation of Rohingya Muslims. And that led me to talk to our Yura Nicolaou. My mom, growing up, she would always reference this. Oh, in my home and we can't go back. I can't go back home. And it was so great back then. Uh, and that summer when we had to leave, like, it's a constant, it's a, it's a narrative that plays um, in her head and throughout her life constantly. Our Yura has personal experience with displacement. She's a Ph.D. student now in comparative literature at Harvard, and she studies novels, poetry, diaries, as well as film and visual art to understand the global experience of migration. But her mother was also displaced from her home in Cyprus, actually internally displaced, during the 1974 division of the island into Greek and Turkish areas. The exodus out of Cyprus began at first light this morning. Immediately, 200,000 people were displaced from their homes in an island of, at the time, I think there were six or 800,000 people. So a third of the population, almost, was displaced in one way or another. Our Euro grew up just miles from her mother's hometown, but it's a place she never got to see. And she started to ask questions about what it means to be displaced. The way I think about it in my research and what has emerged is that there is a transitional period that is the journey of displacement that marks the whole experience. So something happens to time when you're forced to move from what you know and the places that you've known, the surroundings that you know, often separated from your family. It's a beginning of something new, the end of which is not clear. When you pack your belongings and flee your home, you don't know when you're going back. You don't know how you'll get back. And that place you came from, it basically becomes frozen in time. Yeah, and I think that's the main difference also between when you look at the literature of people who voluntarily emigrate and people that have been forced to move. Because on the one hand, in both cases, the place that you left behind changes. The moment you leave, 
even if you return a couple weeks later, I mean, I think that's my that's one of my theories and my one of my hypotheses is that there's something about having to be forced to leave. But but in the case where you can't return for whatever reason, your imagination has to compensate for all of the what ifs, what it what is it like now? So there are imaginary and alternative geographies that are built through these narratives of displacement. This could be writing about a literal place that you came from, the landscapes and skylines of your hometown. Or it could be that everywhere you look, you see a little piece of home. People write a lot about the literature of return or nostalgia. Um, One of the Greek authors that I work on, the Greek Nobel laureate, he was a poet and a diplomat, George Seferis, he calls nostalgia our sickness. Like the refugee sickness is nostalgia because you're always, almost always in two places at once. Seferis, for example, is constantly making comparisons between Palestine and Greece, even about the landscape. He's saying, well, the landscape here is like Greece, not quite, but close enough. So so for him, he's seeing in this geography in the Middle East, the geography of Greece. You know, if I were to make a map of all the places where he said it's like Greece on, on the geopolitical map, I would come up with a very interesting schema and a different understanding of what uh, of what Greece means, what the Middle East means, what what mapping means. George Seferis is a writer who fled Greece during World War II when Nazis took control of the country. Greek migrants fled to Egypt and Palestine, taking roughly the reverse route that modern-day refugees take from the Middle East to Europe. At that time, Europe is not a haven for people that want to go there. It's not an Eden uh, for migrants. It's actually a hellish place that people want to flee from. Seferis wrote novels and poetry, but he also kept a detailed diary that traced his journey across the Mediterranean. And it's the 30th of September in 1942. And he writes the following. Here in the Middle East, as they call it, we keep on sinking. We are not people. We are the foreigners. We are not one kind of foreigners. We are all these different types of foreigners, as many types as people, as many types as individuals. We are the crowd of a sinking ship, each fighting separately on his or her own shipwreck. This image of each person being on their own shipwreck, it's haunting because you can easily imagine that same feeling among the Syrian refugees who have come ashore in Greece in this century. He himself has had to cross the Mediterranean, packed in a boat with, you know, thousands of people that he didn't know, 
when Europeans are, are uh, boarding these trains to Palestine in the summer of 1942, they're, they're jam-packed in the trains, right? So they are... It's a depersonalizing and dehumanizing experience, even in that in that way. But what Seferis does here is that he's saying, well, we're all called the foreigners, undifferentiated, but this experience has changed us to the extent that we can't fall back on the solidarity that usually j- makes a group gel. This is a group that is not in solidarity, not because they... Um, not because refugees don't help each other. That's not what I mean. It's because everyone is coming from such different circumstances and is forced to be together and is forced to be displaced in this manner together that that it is a very, very lonely and uh, almost desolate or desperate experience as well. Frequently, the people who play host to new refugees don't show empathy for newcomers in their midst. If we think about how migrants and refugees are represented in the media today. Every day they come, sometimes in their hundreds, refugees and those seeking As work. thousands of refugees poured into Germany over the weekend. We see a lot of that dehumanization and abstraction. I'll say abstraction. We say Waves of migrants are streaming through the borders. Ai Weiwei has the title Human Flow in his latest documentary on migration. It's, it's a swarm, if you want to be more derogatory. So we, do, we definitely have the tendency of depersonalizing that because usually people come in groups, Right. And that uh, and that makes it easier to do so. The experience of displacement happens to one person at a time. A sea of humanity, a swarm, a mass of people. Our Euro thinks that those freezes blot out the stories of individuals. And she's interested in looking at those stories across time and space as a literature of displacement. And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. What would it mean to look at Europe from the moving perspective of the Mediterranean? What would it mean to teach works or put works in the European canon that are not written from the certainty of an urban, largely white, largely Christian sort of society um, that only encounters migrants as intruders or as unwanted guests, right? At the same time, if you are um, if you are a migrant yourself, hmm. you have an unprecedented ability to communicate via yes. social media yes. to other pe- people in your situation, perhaps to people who are still in your home country. And that's like no other time in yes. history. Uh, Seferis could not do that. No, he could not do that. That's for sure. <laughs> he had to get a publisher. He had to like write, a, you know, a, a novel. He yeah. had to go through editing, and to a certain extent, maybe, you know, I, I, I'm unfamiliar with whether there are artists who are doing a lot of work who are telling the story in their own voices, mm. but there certainly are people who are able to give their raw experience in a way that we couldn't do at other points of history. Yeah. No, that's true. And there are 
a lot of you know there are facebook groups for for um refugees or for people who are thinking about making the trip and they um they communicate a lot and i'm sure share their experiences uh through social media in instant ways but the the issue that's not being addressed by this use of social media is while we can each communicate within our own national or racial or ethnic group, it's not facilitating the cross-national, cross-cultural communication. It takes more time for those stories to arrive to the host, um, to the host community. It takes trust and it takes, you know, communication and that takes years. So far, we've been talking about people who've been physically displaced, even if that means being displaced by only a few miles. But our Euro is saying that there's another kind of displacement, one that takes place even after migrants find a safe place to land. If the community where you live, the politicians, the military, the government doesn't trust you, are you still living in a state of displacement? Those are questions we're going to ask in our last episode about displacement. The the interaction kind of went it was, as it was supposed to. The problem is the meaning of that interaction. The problem is the sense that a number of different types of interactions, whether they're legal or not, can signal a lack of humanity and a lack of kind of social inclusion, a sense that the police just don't care. Veritalk is produced by me, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. Our executive producer is Ann Hall. Our sound designer is Ian Koss. Our logo is by Emily Wilson. You can find new episodes of Veritalk on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us five stars and leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback. You can also find episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or at gsas.harvard.edu. If you want to leave us some feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email, veritalk at fas.harvard.edu. That's veritalk, all one word, at fas.harvard.edu.